0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Doing the right thing, what does it take? Deep dive DC political analyst, Pacifica host, and contributor to this show, rebel cop and righteous whistleblower Garland Nixon, talks taking that leap and the psychology of whistleblowing. And his own example, walking away from Fox News, and what all of that may have to do with broken Cherokee Nation treaties and the FBI files sealed for 50 years pertaining to the mystery still surrounding the murder of Martin Luther King
1: Good evening, my name is Garland Nixon I was uh, listening to, uh, yesterday I was at an event here in D.C. Um, It was also um, a a get-together for people who supported Julian Assange. And one of the people that spoke, a friend, a good guy named uh, John Kiriakou, he was a whistleblower. And what he was talking about was, you know, he he was the guy who came forward on the U.S. government when the Bush administration said, no, no, we're not torturing people. He was in with the CIA and he came forward and he said, oh, yeah, they are. And here's the evidence, which, of course, you know, there was a price to pay um he did the right thing and the fact of the matter is um under the law whistleblowers are supposed to be protected and in fact in some instances they are even supposed to be compensated but what happened to John Kiriaku was he got framed and thrown in jail for 2 years because the reality is is the reality of what the government does is far different than what they say right so he's a whistleblower what happens he tells on the government And he goes to jail for two years and he was lucky he only got two years and you'll find a history of whistleblowers. That's what happens. They send a message clear. And that's what's going on with Julian Assange right now. Julian Assange was a man who told the truth, who a publisher, who it has never been alleged as of yet, that Julian Assange published something that was false. That's why they're they're persecuting him, because he didn't tell a lie. He told the truth, and he he let information out on behalf of the people. But one of the things John said, you know, it it, just struck home. Think about it. Because it made me think, man, it really struck me. He said, you know, he read this book. I forgot the name of the book, but it was a book on whistleblowers. And he said, what he found out, what he what did the guy um posited, uh, the author of the book, was that whistleblowers have a um a concept, a very clear concept of right and wrong, of black and white. Something's right or it's something wrong. Something's wrong, right? And it's It struck struck with me, and that they don't think about themselves. They're not like, oh, this is about me. What's going to happen to me? What can benefit me? It's like, well, no, this is just wrong, right? And I thought of some of the greats. I thought of Malcolm X. I thought of Martin Luther King, you know, and I thought about people who— They just took a position and they said, look, this is the way it is. You know, Malcolm X said, he said, look, if he says, I'm just giving you the truth. If the truth is anti-American, don't blame me. Blame the truth. Right. And I think it really struck home with me because of what I do. If you listen to my show. Right. I'm not saying anything. I'm telling you, it it struck home with me. It made me think. That's all I'm saying. And what I thought, I'm like, well, you know, it's interesting. How do I feel about this? Because when I look at my background, you know, I was in law enforcement for years. Right. And I sued the department I was on. I sued them. I didn't win or lose it. They settled out of court. We had a strong suit. But I sued them for racism and discrimination. And they wouldn't even challenge go to court with that because the case was strong. They settled out of court and we had a settlement that made them do different things as a department. And we had a settlement that I got some money out of the deal, but there was a settlement. Right. But I didn't I did it. I didn't do it for money or anything else. I did it because, in my opinion, what they were doing were wrong, was wrong. They were coming after me. It was wrong, and I was going to fight it no matter what. And I never thought about losing my job or anything happening to me other than this is wrong, and, 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 and they're not getting away with it, right? And, you know, I told people I was over at Fox, you know, doing well, doing real well. There was a, The world was ahead of me, trust me. You know, there was a lot of opportunities for me there, financially and, and otherwise, right? I'm going on national TV, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm doing T V shows all over the place. And at some you know, to be quite happy, people say, Why'd you leave Fox? Did something happen, you know? And I'm like, No, I really loved it. But and I said what I believed, but what happened was the show that I was doing up in New York was called, um, chasing news. It was a news show, New York city. It was in Philly. It was in on my nine in New Jersey, various places. Right. And I, it was fun, man. I got in there, you know, I'm doing a TV's glamorous and oh my gosh, I just loved it. Be in front of the cameras, Loved the cameras, right? Loved the whole scene of TV. It was so much fun. So then the guy, it was called chasing news with Bill Spadia. And he was a very conservative guy. We disagreed or whatever. But what happened was um, it got close to Christmas and they said, you know, holidays started coming and they started saying, you know, Bill's going to take some days off. And, hey, Garland, we really like you. Would you be interested in hosting the show some days? And I'm like you know, wow, you want me to host a TV show? They're like, yeah, right? All you got to do, we write all the stuff and you read the, um, from the teleprompter and you, we're going to do advertisements and preps for the show that are going to come on all evening and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wow, I'm hosting a TV show. How cool is this? It was awesome to me. It was like my dreams are coming true. And then I got up there and, you know, it was harder than I thought. You know, you're sitting here reading from a teleprompter and there's somebody in your ear or you're interviewing people and there's somebody in your ear and they're saying, "Okay, we're going out in 30 seconds. They're counting down. You're hearing things and you're talking and you got to pretend like, you know, you're in a conversation and all this and you got like people in your ear and all these things are going on. And it was tough and I enjoyed it, but it dawned on me. I, I'm reading from a teleprompter, and I'm a real radical kind of dude, and I'm reading stuff from the teleprompter that is robotic system, and it's weird because I kind of reached the pinnacle. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm literally hosting a TV show in New York City and points all over that, you know, New England, right? And I felt like, you know, there's, now I'm moving up. And I knew, you know, at that point, I knew there was more opportunities for me. I knew, okay, that's the next step. The next step is you could get your own TV show. Something Big big things are happening. You know, people don't do that in TV unless they're starting to, you know, look at you and listen to you. And I, I felt like I was doing really well. But I reached after all this time, 10 years or so in TV, and I'm reading from a teleprompter. And within a couple of weeks, I called Christmas came and I told him I wasn't coming back and that was it and I walked away and I didn't really I didn't do Fox News anymore you know I was doing National Fox News all the Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson's and all that stuff stopped doing it I stopped doing the the local shows that I was doing up around New England dropped it all when I was reading from that teleprompter and it wasn't what I wrote and it wasn't what I thought I started realizing I just, I just, just, this is, you know, it was what John Kirioka was talking about. It was like a clear vision in my head of what's right and wrong. And I don't care about all the money and everything else in the world. I can't do this. And I never thought about that. I knew I walked away. I was kind of proud of myself, you know, but I never thought about really in depth what was there. And I came to realize it's a matter of right and wrong. And I felt like I'm now reading the words for the system that I really feel is an unjust system. And that was that. And I started thinking about my foreign policy perspective, right? Because there's people, are, ah, you're just an America-hating person. And I'm like, I just tell it like it is. It is what it is. Now, why do I get into that? Because that's the way I feel about U.S. foreign policy. I see that over and over. And right is right and wrong is wrong. And people say, well, do you support the United States on this and that, blah, 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 and this country or that country? And here's what I say. In pretty much every foreign policy endeavor encounter of the United States that I know of, I have yet to meet somebody who can understand them and support the United States position. That includes Ukraine, that includes Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, on and on, Uh, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, you name it, if you understand it. You're not going to support the U.S.'s position because it's the U.S. empire. And you look at the history of the United States and you look at that particular instance. And every single time when you get into the details, you'll say, oh, my gosh, we're wrong. So when people get on well, my case, well, gee, you don't never support the United States. I say I don't support or not support the United States. Wrong is wrong and right is right. And I want to know the details of the issue. Look at. As, for example, Israel. Look, I don't care about the religious perspective of it. You had a bunch of Palestinian people in Palestine. And the U.S. empire and the colonial empires in Europe walked up and said, you know what? This is, belongs to this group now. We're going to put them in there. We're going to throw you out of your house. We're going to take your property, take your farms that you've lived on for generations, and we're going to move these people in. And you will be oppressed. You will be slaughtered. You'll be thrown into refugee camps. Now, I don't care what you think about who should have what. If you simply look at the details of the issue, you have to say, well, that's not right. How would I feel if I got a house? I got property. How would you feel if you were a member of the Cherokee Nation when the United States in up there in Georgia, near North Carolina, when you had a treaty with the United States and the U.S. government came and violated the treaty and took your property and you went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court looked at your treaty and said, you are right. You got a treaty with them. You've come to the right place and we're going to make a ruling. You don't have standing to bring the case. They had a treaty with the United States that said it's their land, and the Supreme Court says, yeah, 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 but we determine that you don't have standing to make a case. It's yours. That is the history of the U.S. Empire. That's just the history. I didn't write that history. Don't get mad at me, and I have a concept in my mind of right and wrong, and if it's wrong, I can't say that it's right. Let me give you an example. There's something you might want to know. So this was um, Martin Luther King's birthday. It was Martin Luther King's birthday. And there was the FBI. They tweeting things out. "Yay, Martin Luther King. And I'm thinking, well, how hypocritical is that? Biden, oh boy, Martin Luther King. Let me read you something now. Let me read you. A lot of people don't know the history because people will say, well, I think the FBI had something to do with it. Well, let me just read something to you that you might want to know because the FBI had files, files on that. The FBI had files on Martin Luther King. Most people know that. But where are those files now? They're sealed by a judge. The FBI files. We just celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday. Let me read you this. <clears throat> In the years after the 1968 assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., reports, demer- reports emerged that the government was destroying sensitive documents related to the murder case. Gee, wonder why they do that. The FBI was criticized for appearing unusually reluctant to release records pertaining to King. Hmm, sounds kind of suspicious. Let me continue. In 1997, Judge John Lewis Smith ruled against Bernard Lee and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in a lawsuit and ordered that the King files be sealed for 50 years. In 1983, Senator Jesse Helms attempted to open the files because he believed that the release of the FBI records would incriminate King and prevent the establishment of Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a federal holiday. He was denied by Judge Smith. The documents are thus not stated for release until 2027. Among these are an FBI file called Merkin for Murder King, the official designation of the Martin Luther King assassination investigation. Hmm. The FBI had a file called Merkin that stood for Murder King. It's the official designation of the Martin Luther King assassination investigation and information about how the FBI threw cointelpro Pro targeted king while he was alive did you know that the king family look up Jowers, j o w e r s e s that the um king family sued um regarding um the and, and uh, uh, the, the the murder of dr king and alleged that it was a broad conspiracy including the government and one a court of law found that it was in fact a conspiracy. So as the United States does all of this, yay, Martin Luther King is a saint. Isn't he a wonderful person? The FBI files on Martin Luther King, Merkin for Murder King file, is sealed until 2027. They sealed it for 50 years. And do you Like I have a funny feeling that in 2027, when people say, "Okay, time to see the Martin Luther King files, that in the same way that a few years ago, when the trial, when the CIA files um, regarding the death of John F. Kennedy, the president of the United States, was, was scheduled to be released, the government said we can't do it because of national security concerns. And they were correct, because if the American people saw what they already know, and that is that the CIA and various other intelligence agencies put the bullet, put a bullet in the head of the President of the United States, the people of the United States would know the truth. You see, the people of the United States live in a false reality, a reality where this is a a democracy, a great democracy, a benevolent democracy that goes around the world to do good and to make the world a better place to share with all and to be fair when the reality is just the Opposite. The United States is a murderous crime family. It is a criminal organization. America, you are not on the QET two. You are not on a luxury liner. You're not on the Norwegian Princess. You're on the Jolly Roger. You're on a pirate ship. And right now, the people around the world know it, but Americans, unfortunately, ain't hip to it. Woo! It is what it is.
0: Thank you, Garland Nixon. And coming up next on Arts Express, David Arquette may be best known for the screen movies, but his current starring role is in contrast, shrouded in a suspect silence of multiple covert motivations, politically and economically, in the historically-based dramatic feature on sacred ground, revisiting the 2016 mass protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline violating Lakota tribal land, and Arquette as a shady oil company operative and in suspect collusion with the deep state and the corporate media, and what the misleading motives back then of the U.S. bid to control global energy in competition with OPEC may have to do with war and Russia in the present time. First, some scenes from On Sacred Ground, then David Arquette.
2: I'm really glad you're here, Dan. is all over this Native American protest up there and we need a no BS profile on that pipeline. Who do you work for? Miguel. I'm a journalist. My job is to help you tell the best story you can. And what story is that? Whatever you write. Whatever you see. Promise me he'll come back. You're with me, aren't you, Dan? Welcome to the circus. Sure you're up for this? That'll move 500,000 gallons a day.
1: Are you here to redeem yourself
0: or make money for somebody else? You have a responsibility to tell the truth about what's going on here.
1: You've had some trouble with some of the workers and some of the native
2: women. You should do some research. You know, transporting oil is risky. The question is, how do you minimize the
1: risk? What did you mean the land is protected by the U.S. Constitution?
2: Everything you see there
1: legally belongs to the Sioux Nation. I was hired to find out what's going on.
2: No, no, you were hired by us! Is he a liability?
1: Yeah, he's a problem. It was important, Chili. I couldn't just ignore
3: it.
2: Why?! I'm your wife! We have enough oil to last a century. But it's useless if we can't move it. We can't have him turning the tables on us. Strong warriors never stand down, even in the face
0: of
1: defeat. You move the pipeline right to the mouth of the reservation at their only water source. Just let me explain... Who wrote
0: this article?
1: We destroyed their past, but you're destroying their future. America
2: doesn't run on fairy dust. That's true.
0: Hi, is that you, David?
2: Yes, it sure is.
0: Well, hello and welcome.
2: Awesome, Barry. Give me one second. I'm just getting out of a bad sound zone. Okay. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you.
0: What was it about on Sacred Ground, this film and this true story, that got you inspired to be part of it?
2: Well, my sister, Patricia and Rosanna, both were at the protest Ah. uh, at Standing Rock. My sister, Patricia, with their charity GiveLove.org, provided some sanitation needs and Rosanna was there protesting uh, with her, her First Nation people, uh, family, and friends. And then, uh, and then working with Josh and Rebecca Tickle, uh, they're just such incredible filmmakers. The documentaries they do on the environment and, um, and, uh, and all that work that they do, uh, I became friendly with them, and then they just asked me if I could be a part of this.
0: And your character, Elliot, is the designated villain, an oil corporation shady promoter. What can you say what your character represents as a collusion of the corporations, the government, and the media that we see in the real world as well? And why that interested you?
2: What interested me was, it's, it's a complex story. My character, Elliot, says at one point, you know, the U.S. doesn't run on fairy dust. And there is some truth to that. And there is some truth to the fact that we're going to need to find some kind of common ground and, and uh way to work with each other until we get to a completely renewable energy source. Um, so it just, I don't know, there was something interesting about that. But the way the sort of corporations and the government and, you know, the people's financial interests sort of have an effect on the way we govern uh, and what we consider to value. Uh, I think it's one of the big problems that we need to solve in the near future, hopefully.
0: And what can you say about taking on this serious project for you as a new direction and interacting for the production with the Indigenous cast?
2: Oh, that was wonderful. I mean meeting the indigenous cast was just incredible uh dancing out was so kind to me and and uh we've been friendly and gotten to talk a little and um i don't know i i learned a lot i didn't know that there was a, a treaty uh that isn't being honored by the you know u.s government and i'm sure there's more than one but that was just interesting to me i was like wait you know country of laws. Like, how is that not front page news? But, uh, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with finance.
0: And what are your thoughts about what this important event in the past says to our present time and the impact of this film, hopefully on our present moment in time?
2: Um, I think it says a lot about, uh, our past and, uh, what we need to fix in the future I mean some of the outrage about uh you know I guess people are calling it critical race theory or whatever it's really our history you know we've all been taught a history that isn't completely accurate we've been taught a history that you know history is written by the winners Mm -hmm. of the wars yeah you know in their favor so um so it's just important to understand the mistakes that we've made in the past so that we don't repeat them in the future. Like That's the whole idea. We're not about, I mean, in general, it's not about, you know, uh, you know making people feel bad about their heritage, but it's about learning from the past and not making the same mistakes again and then honoring people, all people as each.
0: Now, at one point in the film, it's revealed that the stated purpose of the corporation to provide energy to the country was a lie, and that the real purpose was to become a leader supplying energy globally to replace OPEC. And we seem to see that today as well, with the U.S. sanctioning Russian oil because of war, when it looks like it's to replace Russian oil as a competitor. Because they've increased their energy output globally at the same time, to dominate the market, and they've been increasing fracking now in Texas, and that's been increasing earthquakes in Texas, and to dominate markets in Europe in particular, and with the sanctions seemingly as a component in achieving their energy dominance over Russia. What are your thoughts about that?
2: Uh, I don't think that's why the sanctions are there. If that also came into their... um, uh, into the equation when they were figuring out if they're going to back it or not is part of it. Probably. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. I mean, if you blow up your, you know, solid ground, that's <laughs> going to get shaky. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it has a lot to do with, with that as well. I'm not a big fan of war in general. I don't <laughs> know. Like, I don't have a solution for it. <laughs> so I don't know. I do, uh, but there was also, you know, talk about broken treaties. There are broken treaties. This, You know, as, as much as people want to say Putin's, you know, started this war over nothing, there was a treaty uh, after the Second World War that also, you know, uh, NATO wasn't supposed to move, you know, toward Russia and, and has. So I don't know. I don't know what the solutions are. I just think we can do better as a human race. Uh, we could put people before profits. That would be a really huge step. If everyone just understood, and listen, I'm an actor, so please, uh-uh. <laughs> you know, what do I, what do I know? But uh, I do know that what does unite us is that if you are a parent, uh, that you have a, a child, and that you love your child, and that's what unites us. And if you don't have a child, then you are the child of someone. If we can understand that we're all, there's there's not this side or that side. There's only one side. It's only us. But if you're trying to put people in different categories, that's part of the problem. Um, You know, and uh, if we could all understand that it's about the love we have for our children and that we want to keep all of us everywhere, want to keep our children safe, I think we could, if if that's our goal, like, how do we keep children safe? How do we stop killing soldiers on the battlefield? Like, that could be a really great question to ask and problem to solve.
0: And you ventured into filmmaking as well with The Tripper in 2006 about, quote, a Ronald Reagan-obsessed serial killer targeting hippies heading to a concert please elaborate about your inspiration and making your own movies.
2: Yeah, well, the trip <laughs> was uh, a really labor of love. I learned a lot. But yeah, it a, it's about the sort of right and left, the extreme. When you get extreme on either side, it becomes sort of problematic. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he had a... Ronald Reagan had a hatred for uh, hippies. <laughs> he didn't like them. Uh, and uh, so it sort of had fun with that, with the sort of conservative side and the completely radical mm. side. And, you know, uh, the influence of psychedelics within that.
0: And are you planning any more films of your own?
2: Um, yeah, eventually. I mean, we're working on a documentary now about... Oh. Uh, of saving the clowns like bringing kind clowns back oh. <laughs> stealing the spotlight from scary clowns and trying to infuse some joy and laughter into the world that's really uh, one of the great gifts we can all spend our days laughing a little more instead of uh the turmoil we're in yeah i think the world would be a better place
0: speaking of tribes
2: Create... Oh, sorry, and uh, sorry okay. that documentary is also involving Bozo the Clown. <laughs> Just to throw that in, there's no release date, but we're in the we're in production. Oh, okay. So, sorry, what were you saying?
0: Speaking of tribes, I wanted to ask you what has been the creative inspiration for you of your very illustrious family, especially as the youngest member of that tribe.
2: Uh... Well, first started with my mom and dad, obviously, and my grandfather. Uh, We inherited, uh, you know, um, we were born into a family of performers, much like uh, carpenters born into a family of carpenters, Mm. or uh, graphic artists born into a family of graphic artists. You tend to pick up skills and uh, uh, know people within the business, so I know there's a lot of talk about nepotism, which I totally understand, but it also cuts both ways. You know, sometimes it's difficult having uh, uh, siblings that are in the same business. Uh, I once was asked, who do you think the best actor is in the Arquette family on Watch What Happens Live? And I said, myself. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the whole audience laughed. and, uh, And I explained to them, I said that because you need extreme confidence to be an actor. Yeah. You have to be so relaxed within your confidence that uh, you can try things that might be embarrassing or uh, difficult uh, or revealing. So it's really important to sort of understand that. And I explained that to them, but even people laughing at me like, oh, you're not as good an actor as your sister. It's like, Uh okay. You know, I haven't had (laughs) the roles, opportunities she has, but uh, I don't think, I I always have a hard time just people judging people anyway, or grading, or or ranking.
0: (laughs) And any last word about On Sacred Ground and what you hope to convey to audiences with this film?
2: I hope that it's the beginning of more inclusion in First Nation people and indigenous communities within the film industry. That's the first and foremost, uh, most important aspect of it. I hope people learn about uh, the pipeline, about sort of our dealings in the oil industry, and hopefully we can start making some changes so we uh, start prioritizing human life and families, kindness, growth, art, education as what's truly of value rather than... uh, you know, typical things of monetary value.
0: Mm. Okay. Thank you so much, David Arquette, for joining us on the show.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Bye. Thank you.
0: And On Sacred Ground is out now in release. Hey, días, Pedro. ¿Quieres que te corte el pelo? Aquí, la frontera
3: de los Estados Unidos...
2: yeah hey man listen i'm Tommy Chong i kind of created teaching Chong and i listen to arts express non-stop because it's the only show that really tells you what's going on
0: on Arts Express
3: this is Jack Shalom. There's a new revival of the play Top Dog Underdog in New York City and it's one of the only plays I know of where a main character is a three-card Monty hustler. Now for a long time I've been obsessed about the connections between theater and three-card Monty, especially ever since I got conned at Monty when I was a teen visiting London. I once actually published an academic study of theater and three-card Monty. And what I learned is that you can take the three-card Monty out of the theater, but you can't take the theater out of the three-card Monty. Because in fact, the Monty con on the street is not a game of skill, but a very sophisticated piece of street theater. In the words of scam expert Darwin Ortiz, three-card Monty is a carefully rehearsed play with an elaborate cast of characters and a detailed script. The spectator is cast in the role of sucker and he plays his part to perfection. So, curtain up on a performance of Three Card Monty and then we'll take a backstage view. All right, the scene. A large crowd gathered in the middle of the sidewalk. A fast-talking guy is standing behind a makeshift cardboard box table. Now he's mixing up three face-down cards on the table. Two black cards, one red. He challenges the crowd to find the red card. Find the red, find the red, find the red. Hi diddle diddle, the queen is in the middle. When the money goes down, the lady can't be found. Red you choose, black you lose, place your bet, take a chance again. I don't complain when I lose, but I grin when I win. Well, a few people take him up on the offer. No, you got to pay to play. Show me your money. So they each show him, let's say 20 to 40 dollars, and some of the players win. They picked correctly the red card, and the dealer pays off, while others, fooled by the dealer's quick moves, having chosen a black card, lose their money. Well, it soon dawns on our naive spectator, let's call him Jack for reference, that he can do better than those who keep losing. In fact, when one of the other active players asks Jack for advice on which card to choose, Jack manages to select the right card, and the player thanks Jack for his advice and insists to the dealer that Jack be paid as well. <laughs> the dealer, however, is adamant that Jack has to put up his own money to play. Meanwhile, several more rounds go by with players winning and losing money, although the stakes now have gone up to 80 and even $100 a round. And Jack, encouraged by his apparent ability to follow the red card, finally decides to put up some of his own money $100 unfortunately however jack is mistaken this time and picks the wrong card losing the money but just as jack is about to walk away fate seems to intervene to restore hope to the hapless jack while jack is trying to get over his shock and disappointment in losing The other players have been fighting with the dealer, insisting that the dealer give their new colleague Jack another chance. Although the dealer refuses, a stroke of luck comes Jack's way. One of the players knocks over the cardboard table, which distracts the dealer's attention. And as soon as the dealer goes to pick up the cards from the floor, another player grabs the red card and bends a corner of it while the dealer isn't looking. So the dealer begins the game again, but doesn't notice the bent corner. Well, this time it's very easy to follow the red card because the bend in the corner of the card is apparent even from the face down side. The dealer now begins to lose all of his bets. And at last, Jack, sufficiently recovered from the shock of the previous mistake, now has the confidence to put up another $100. The dealer, however, declares he's no longer taking any more $100 bets. It's 200 or nothing. Well, the other players look at one another and smile as they look at the bent corner. They wink at Jack. They put up their money, and so does Jack, confident now that finding the red card, the one with the bend, is a sure thing. Well, when Jack is told to turn over the chosen card... He gasps in astonishment and horror. The card, bends and all, is black, not red. How could it be? But it is. As the dealer sweeps up the money, packs up the game, and leaves, Jack is left only with the comfort of another player who commiserates. Well, no use going to the cops. I guess he beat us fair and square. But of course, Jack was not beaten fair and square. Now most people who lose at Monty, assume that they have been beaten fair and square by the talents of a skilled dealer. They assume that the dealer's sleight of hand was just too quick for them. While it is true that there is sleight of hand involved, this trickery alone will not guarantee the success of the enterprise. Rather, as we said before, Jack walked into a carefully rehearsed play with an elaborate cast of characters and a detailed script. Jack was cast in the role of sucker and he played his part to perfection. It's a script that historically goes back to at least 18th century Paris and was perfected on trains and riverboats in 19th century America. So let's break it down.
2: Change, change, change.
3: Contrary to appearances, far from being a one-man operation, three-card Monty is usually enacted by companies that consist of about 20 actors at a time. Now, these 20s break up into casts of five to seven actors, each performing a couple of blocks apart. Well, this allows for the easy understudying and replacement of parts should an actor in one cast become... Uh, indisposed, (laughs) or exposed, or arrested. The dealer is the most visible member of each cast. He's the one who manipulates the cards and is most often the cast's director. Well, using sleight of hand, the dealer can toss the cards in such a way that the red card can appear in any given position. And he's the only member of the cast who the victim, sometimes called the mark, believes is involved in running the game. But... There are other actors called shills, usually numbering three to five in a cast, who have an equally essential, if not more important role. Their role is to act as if they are ordinary people who have stopped by to watch the show and have ended up betting. They are there to entice the marks into betting on the wrong card. And then there are the lookouts, who in the old days used to be called slides. The slides, usually two of them, post themselves at either end of the block. Should they see the police or any other trouble coming, they yell out, slide, which is a signal for the dealer and chills to disappear. Now, at the beginning, it's important to draw a crowd to this makeshift set. So the shills bet loudly on the cards, making sure they make enough noise by shouting, cheering, clapping. They all have wads of money in their hands to indicate that they've been playing for a while and that they've been making money. Some of the shills will deliberately bet on the losing cards, while others will bet on the winning card. Now, the dealer at this point is making no attempt at sleight of hand. Anybody playing a modicum of attention can predict where the red card will be. Eventually, naïve spectators will start to gather, and it's from this audience that the Shills will select the mark. As outlined earlier, a Shill might ask a potential mark, choose the card for him. Uh, A Shill may even sidle up to the mark and whisper in the mark's ear, I know the game is fixed, but I can still get the red card every time. As soon as the mark responds, however, he is literally shoved center stage. Let me explain this. The mark up to now has been outside the circle that the shills have initially established around the dealer and his stage. A shill will now physically take the mark by the hand and lead him center stage in front of the cards as the other shills draw around him, physically locking him in the crowd. Now, this is called closing the gates. Now that the mark is ringside and has convinced himself that he can follow the card, he's encouraged to put up his money. The mark feels confident. After all, he's seen people win and lose, and each time he's guessed correctly as to the whereabouts of the red card. Now, this power of psychological persuasion is enormously important to the success of Monty, and this is where the shills come in. For once the mark starts losing, he'll stay in only if the shills can encourage him to do so. To do this, the shills carefully encourage an us-against-him mentality with regard to the dealer. They'll groan any time the mark loses money and cheer when one of the shills win. Now, the mark, by the way, never gets to win, not even as encouragement, no matter what you're told. The sure, sure way to spot a shill is to see who wins. The shills assure the mark that this time we'll get him. Let's both put up money. As in the theater, a Monte performance depends not only on the viability of the script and the skill of the performers, but also on the details of casting and costume. Now, in New York City, as in many cities, a city beset with a highly polarized racial climate many of the best Monty production teams are interracially cast deliberately. The shills are deliberately cast and costumed in such a way as to suggest that they're each of a different race and class background from one another and from the dealer. And so, giving the impression that they can't possibly be working together, the dealer is almost always black and dressed in lower-class street clothes. So, by including shills who are white and Hispanic, the actors play on the racist assumption that people of different races couldn't possibly be working together. This diversity of class, sex, nationality, and race also allows various categories of marks to form bonds with shills who look or sound like themselves. Now, I, I observed a memorable example of this near Times Square when a French tourist and her husband stopped to watch and discuss the Monte performance going on in front of them. And as soon as the first few words of French were heard out of her mouth, one of the shills turns to her and replies in flawless French that she could win money by betting on the red card. Needless to say, it was not too long before the French couple lost their money. Now, not all Monte casts are successful just like not all plays are successful. I observed one Monte cast on Broadway and 48th Street in New York City that was exceptionally unconvincing. The actors could not even draw a crowd. All of the shills as well as the dealer were black and two of the three shills were wearing cheap t-shirts and gym shorts as was the dealer. And the third shill who was wearing a dress shirt with dress pants, was also incongruously wearing sneakers, as were the other two shills. So their costumes fairly shouted out to any passerby that the shills and the dealer were part of the same cast working together. Eventually, this cast broke up and left the location very disgruntled, having made no money at all. Look, in Monty... A talented leading man alone will not bring in the box office receipts and this is evidenced by the fact that even a talented dealer always works with a cast even though he has to split the take he knows which side his bread is buttered on And of course, the whole business with the bent corner is scripted as well. That's our little encore, the fleecing of the mark, and each cast member plays their part there too. Because when it finally looks as if the mark has lost too much money and wants to quit the play, one of the shills puts a bend in the corner of the red card while the dealer is apparently not watching. Of course, the dealer, contrary to appearances, is fully aware of what's happened. When the mark finally gets enough courage to bet again, the dealer can get the mark to put up an unusually large amount, since the mark at this point is very anxious to make his money back. So then the dealer, using sleight of hand, unbeknownst to the mark, is actually able to unbend the corner of the red card and put a bend in one of the black cards. I observed one poor mark A man who twice earlier had lost a lot of money, lose $5,000 this way. Oh, and if the mark starts to get physical, rest assured, there are those in the cast among the slides whose job is to intimidate and strong arm. The mark's going to get hurt, but usually that's not necessary. Once the scene is played out, the dealer leaves the area as quickly as possible. Now it appears that the performance is over, but there is still one more scene to be played. If the mark says he's gonna call the cops, another shill called the smoother, usually one who has not yet played much of a role, will go up to the mark sympathetically in order to calm him down and allow the other actors a quick exit. Ah oh, well <laughs> no use calling the cops like I guess they beat us fair and square, she'll commiserate with the mark. Well, the mark does not understand that he's just heard the curtain line of a classic play starring himself. Though the con game draws many techniques and structures from the theater, the con game is, of course, a criminal enterprise. Not a game of chance, but a criminal enterprise. The performance of theater demands the willing suspension of disbelief, but the performance of Monty demands instead the unwilling suspension of cash. (laughs) Next time, I'll talk about my favorite con game and con person films. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller, giving up on trying to find that red card.